Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Action 22's Making Action Happen. Once again, we're talking about the most pressing issues that are facing our Southern Colorado communities. We have a full, full show for you today um, and a great one, we hope. First, we're going to be talking with um, Action 22 board member Guillermo Lombari. He is also the uh, director of community outreach for AT&T. And there's some interesting things that have been happening with the industry and with some of their projects that have been going on through the, with this. And so he's going to be uh, talking with us about that. We also have the vaccine briefing that, that just came out last night that we're going to be going over with everybody. And that's how the vaccines will be dispersed. We'll be talking a little bit about that later on in the show. And then finally, uh, the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about what Action 22 is doing as far as their efforts and their uh, strategy for next year, for the 2021 year. But we will also be talking and sort of <laughs> um, going over the stimulus. And um, I'm going to do my best because I know my mom's listening to the show to only use failure and frustration as the F words for the stimulus package that still has not been passed uh, by Congress. So, with that, I want to um, first give a shout out to all the every business owner um, and the ones I've been talking to, the Action 22 members and, and the ones that are good friends who own businesses who are working so, so, so hard to make all everybody stay in it and, and to our state. Um, I'm super proud of the state of Colorado right now. Um, so with that, I want to introduce Guillermo. Um, Guillermo has been on the Action 22 board uh, for a couple years now. He is an excellent golfer. Um, he comes from Texas, and so I really like to tease him a lot about that. Uh, but he's brought a fresh new perspective, um, not only to our connection with the industry um, and what we do, but really in you know, sometimes it's fresh eyes. So Guillermo, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Really appreciate it. And, and you're very kind to say I'm a good golfer because I don't he's believe not, I am. He's not that great of a golfer, but we, we sure had fun. Uh, we did. It, it, is, it is always fun. That's, that's, what, that's what's nice about it. I, what I enjoyed most golfing with you is sort of your fascination and the compare and contrast of of Southern Colorado, I'm going to say culture with where you came from in Texas. That delighted yeah. me. And, and then also I messed with you a lot. So some of those things you'll have figured <laughs> out by now and some of them you won't have figured out. So Guillermo, would you give us sort of a snapshot of the industry's response to the whole pandemic, uh, specifically in Colorado, but I mean, around the country, but we really want to hear what those efforts have looked like here in Colorado. Uh, sure, absolutely. So, you know, I think um, it's important to kind of understand um, what happened early on in this in this uh, pandemic and um, kind of the the test that the industry was really put through. Um, you know, the regular day to day work functions uh, on the networks that we work on, whether it be wireless or broadband, were really not 
very demanding. You know, typically folks do email, you know, Slack messages, they, they surf the web, they share files. And so that's kind of what was the day-to-day, you know, um, traffic that we were seeing on our networks. And then all of a sudden, you know, post-pandemic, folks uh, were sent to work home remotely and the demands just really skyrocketed. Um, I think at the height of the pandemic, um, we saw a 27% increase on our bread, on our networks. And this is specifically because now folks were at home, right? So, you know, folks would turn on the, the television to watch the news while they're doing their work. They're, they're doing a lot more video chatting, uh, FaceTime, Skype, Zoom, uh, you know, as we are today. And so we just really saw an exponential increase. And so I think, I think from a broad perspective, the industry was, is pretty uh, proud of the way that the networks held up. You know, there's not a lot of um, businesses that can scale over 20% overnight uh, across the entire country. And so I think overall folks were, you know, you know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's important to, to also recognize that, that the pandemic has also put uh, a magnifying glass on the areas of opportunity uh, for us to get better. But I think um, it's important to recognize also that um, the networks held up really well. And in the United States, you know, um, you know, with the significant investment from wireless um, and, and the broadband providers, I mean, it was pretty much business as usual and folks were able that had access were able, businesses that had access were able to uh, continue their business and also uh, apply new technologies to adapt to the new circumstances that they had to do, right? Right. And so, so let me, let me ask ahead. you a question along that vein. Uh-huh. You know, there's been a lot of discussion and you and I have discussed it and there's always this discussion about um, what is enough. And so uh, it's great to hear that that what was in place um, was actually that, but going into the next phase of sort of recovery and functioning in a new environment, um, do you, would you say that it's enough um, or is the definition of enough altered from where it was a year ago? Sure, sure. No, I think, you know, I. I think the demands have changed, right? I think you have um, you have uh, now needs higher needs within households, you know, um, depending on how many people are living there. So I and then depending what type of work they're doing, right? If you have both parents working from home um, and you have you know three kids on on their Zoom calls during the day, I mean maybe the the current uh, connection speed that they have um, is not is not what is needed anymore right now there's an increase and and then you have to look at uh what availability they have so i think i think it's it's you know i depending on what is available to those individuals right and then i think moving forward there is an open debate and i I don't have an answer for you today but there is an open debate on what is enough uh as you continue to build out the connectivity right and i think that's been a long debate yeah, I don't know that there is a real answer to that yet as to what is enough. I think we're still going to have to figure out a few things. And then there's emergency situations, and then there's sort of coming out of the pandemic. So that's that's going to be an interesting discussion to have in the next um, days and weeks and months um, with regard to that. And we'll come back to that in a second uh, when I ask you a little bit about building that and what that structure is going to look like. Um, so the other thing that I thought was really interesting, because Colorado had a hell of a year and a hell of a summer, to add to what we were already dealing with with the pandemic, the state was burning down. Yep. 
And so there was, I was having a discussion with somebody earlier today and, you know, talking about symptoms and that sort of thing. And, you know, walking around with symptoms, not knowing. And part of it was because the fires. So, you know, your body's reaction to fires was the same as the, some of the, (laughs) some of the um, COVID symptoms. So we have to talk about FirstNet. So talk a little bit about FirstNet, what that is, how that was, how that responded um, and what AT&T's role is in all of that. Sure, absolutely. So uh, AT&T was chosen by the federal government through an RFP process to build out the only um, dedicated public safety network in the country. And so uh, we've been working uh, for the past four years to build out this network. And then additionally to work, uh, we work to try to get subscribers on. So different public uh, eligible agencies that are more specifically in the public safety area to sign on and take advantage of this network. Uh, it's had massive uh, growth um, throughout the country. Over 12,000 agencies have come on board. And, and it's, it's, it's really uh, special because it has a dedicated spectrum that we call BAM 14 that ensures that folks are able to communicate um, in the most important times. And this, this, actually, this program came out of the federal government after 9-11 when they realized that the current infrastructure in place would not withstand a massive um, incidents just like we saw in, in New York. You know, folks were trying to communicate and the networks were not holding up. So this is a, a new network that ATT has had the privilege and honor to to been chosen to build out. And we, you know, we, we have folks uh, from any, anything from a small two, three person volunteer fire department all the way to uh, some of our army bases here in Colorado are equipped with our first net equipment. So really proud. And, and as far as response, you're absolutely right. Um, horrible horrible year for wildfires you know um but we're we're proud to be able to say that we were able to be part of the uh, response to that and help uh, you know keep families safe and and try to protect property and the way we did that is that those agencies that have first net capabilities have the opportunity to request what we call uh sat cults which are satellites on wheels and so these are big trucks that we can set up um, basically anywhere, regardless, uh, you know, it could be in the middle of nowhere and they're able to uplink and bring in connectivity for those uh, first net uh, agencies that are on, on first net devices. So we were able to deploy during the ground ca- Grand County fire and provide connectivity to, to the folks that were on the ground there, uh, regardless how far out uh, they were from, um, from the closest cell tower. So that's been such a, such a, a wonderful asset to be able to use. Um, you know, we've also responded uh, to some to the police department in Alamosa. Um, you know, we 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 provide it with the agencies. They have the ability to request it, and we basically have to have that asset there. I believe within like 14 hours. So um, it's really incredible um, because you know otherwise those folks would not be able to communicate on the ground there, and and we know that communication is so essential when responding to uh, public safety emergencies. Well, especially having that portability of that uh, in Colorado, that's huge because there's a lot of places where you're just not going to get connectivity. I mean, even places you would think were obvious that there it is, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's a constant struggle for any of our first responders in Colorado. And I don't think people understand that because they think, oh, you know, that this urban center for Colorado, whatever urban is, but this urban center yep. is right there. How can you not have that 
you know, a few miles away, but that's seriously, seriously a problem. Um, so where else, what other fires were those deployed on? Um, just, uh, we were specifically part of the Grand Lake and the Cameron Peak. So the, the larger ones. So the big the, ones. Yep, the so big the ones. big ones. That's awesome. Yep. Um, how far is that, to, how far are you for having that structure completely built out or is it built out already? Um, so we still got quite a few years ahead. I, I, I don't, I don't, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges, right? Because we are building in some of the most rural areas in Colorado um, and across the country. Um, and then mountainous, right? Terrain is such, such a, a difficult thing to build on, um, especially like the one that Colorado has in some of our uh, Western states with the mountains. And, and so uh, we don't have a timeline, but I know we, we have expanded our agreements with our, our rural providers as well. So we are, we are trying to use a lot of our existing infrastructure that our rural providers have. So we're continuing to see uh, a lot of expansion on that. And, and, but I, but I, know, I know for a fact we are ahead of schedule on that build. So oh, that's things are moving well. Good. So finally, um, when our, we've got about five minutes with you, will you tell us um, what AT&T's strategy or plan is as far as building out and really expanding that connection? Um, virtuals become the most important thing um, and connections become most, the most important thing in this post-COVID recovery. What's AT&T working on? Sure. So, you know, we... A lot of what we're doing is uh, continuing to invest in Colorado, right? We've, you know, we've invested over $600 million um, in our network here in Colorado. And we, we basically either touch, uh, build up a new tower or touch a new tower once a day, if you really look at the numbers and the amount of time. So but that's the main thing is we're continuing to invest in our network here in Colorado and ensuring that, that we continue to uh, whatever is in place already has the latest technology and has the capacity to, to continue to provide those services, but also continuing to expand in places that we don't have. And FirstNet has been a great part of that because it's allowed us to, to uh, create the opportunity for us to go in areas that in the past we haven't been able to. So that's been very helpful for us. Um, we're also, you know, we understand affordability is a big issue. So we do have um, a specific uh, program that we've launched uh, regarding how to help close the, the digital divide. And so we're, we're offering um, discounted services for education um, as far as being able to get uh, discounted wireless plans, um, you know, for, for schools and things like that. So making it more accessible in the areas that are available. And then, you know, we, we did support the community quite a bit and we hope to continue to do that. I mean, we've, due to the COVID response, we, we've invested this year about $1.2 million in Colorado um, through giving and, um, I, I, I'm sure you don't want me to go over the whole list, but we were able to to help a lot of people uh, through our philanthropic arms and 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 help with that response. Um, and then, so you know, we're we're trying to take a, a, a multi pronged approach and try to respond as much as possible. The thing, the most toughest thing with telecommunications is t- time, right? Um, broadband is 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 difficult and expensive, and telecommunications is difficult, and expensive. And it takes time to build out. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's the, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is, is time and being able to, to catch up um, or be in the areas where we still need to be. Um, And and when this happened overnight, right, I feel like, well, it it didn't happen overnight, but I feel like overnight the demands, like the environment just changed, right? Like 
it was it was a, a big shock for everybody. I don't think anybody could have predicted how much this this would have influenced our lives. No, I agree with you. And it's it's been heartening. And again, I'm so proud of Colorado, but it's been heartening the response and the reaction time and the everybody lifting together um, that we've seen in Colorado. It's been it's been amazing. So um, and I just one note um, is there's a community in the Action 22 area that has always struggled, um, especially with wireless service, um, but it's AT&T is their primary provider there, and that's Custer County, um, and that's always mm-hmm. a really difficult one, um, but that's just one example of, of what we've seen that uh, wireless where nobody else was at, AT&T has been there, so we appreciate we appreciate that. Thanks for all you do for Action 22 and, and being a part of this. Um, would you send us the link to that? Because we've got, uh, we're launching uh, to tomorrow or today, maybe um, a new COVID resource page on our website. So if you'll send that to us, we'll put that on there. Um, yeah, so that absolutely. Is, that would be I, I'll great. send you, I'll send you all the resources we have. And then of course, you're more than willing to give out my, my contact information. And if anybody listening in wants to learn more, they can, they can reach out to me. Absolutely. Guillermo, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. So next, yesterday, late, uh, and there's going to be another briefing on the vaccine um, later today, but we've got the information on some of how the vaccine is going to be dispersed and that sort of thing. So, Brian, can you run that, um, that through with us? Yeah. Um, as of right now, um, you know, you're reading the news that there's different vaccines being developed, but the two big ones are Pfizer and Moderna. And they applied for what's called the emergency use authorization which means that FDA can fast track it if it's, uh, you know, an, an emergency, which it is uh, life-saving vaccine. So those are the two big ones. So that's what we're focusing on now. Um, right now, Colorado's going to get the vaccine. They're expecting it to be delivered mid-December, which is about right now. now. Um, and how they're going to distribute it is going to be in phases. So as of yesterday, there's going to be three phases that they're going to distribute the vaccination. And it's, um, Phase 1A, it's the highest risk healthcare workers and individuals. These are people who must have direct contact with COVID-19 patients for longer periods of time, which they define as 15 minutes or more over a period of 24 hours as part of their job. You know, this also includes long-term care facilities, staff, and residents. 1B is the moderate risk healthcare workers and responders. Um, This is people such as EMS, firefighters, police, correctional workers, dispatchers, funeral service, or other first responders. So that, that's going to be in the first phase. So those are the people that are going to get it right away. The second phase is going to go to the higher risk individuals and essential workers. Those are people that are at an elevated risk of getting very sick or dying of COVID-19. This includes any adult 65 or older, as well as adults of any age with obesity, diabetes, chronic lung disease, heart disease, kidney disease, cancer, or they are immunocompromised. Um, this also includes people that have direct interactions with the public as part of their job. So we're talking grocery store workers, school, childcare, um, anybody that works in high density settings, like you can have a meatpacking plant, a farm, oh, yeah. anything like that. Um, homeless shelters, group home workers, or other healthcare workers not included in phase one. Um, and then that will go into phase three, which is the general public. And that's any individuals 18 to 64 without high risk conditions. Um, with that being said, I don't know the exact number of the vaccines are going to get initially. 
Um, I've heard numbers between 78,000 to, you know, more than that to half that, whatever. Um, and from what I've been reading online and through getting reports um, through Congress and the CDC, you know, this is a two-part vaccination. That's you get a shot and then you get a second shot and that's how they're going to distribute it. Um, and, and as far as terms of like how good is, you know, how good is it? Um, we're looking at 95 to 97% um, efficiency in the test so far. Um, I think England's vaccinating people right now. So we're going to hear some more information out of there. And, and um, with that though, the, the time frame that it's good for, you know, it's still up in there, but they're saying around three months. So you right. get the two vaccinations, you should be immune for three months, which gets into, is this going to be, you know, constant vaccinations over a period of time, or do you get it once? Uh, I don't think they know yet. And they're trying to figure it out. You know, That's a little bit scary in and of itself. It, it, it's, it's normal with these. I mean, it's like a flu shot. You get it once a year because it's good for, you know, just a window. They just, oh, they time out the flu season. So you could see if this is a regular thing for at least the next few years, that there's going to be a COVID season along with the flu, flu, flu season. season. And that's why you get your flu shot, you know, before winter when everybody's inside and close together. So oh, gotcha. it, it's, it, it's par for the course when it comes to these. Um, as of right now, I know the state's working on a plan to distribute the vaccination. Um, I don't think they have anything set yet or they haven't said because they're, they have a, a group of experts that are working on it right, right now. But I can foresee that, you know, the, maybe the National Guard coming in and transporting it and bringing it to the, the centers where they're going to store it. Um, the vaccine does have to be stored at, I believe, negative, negative 70 degrees Celsius. So that's a challenge in itself. Right. Um, you have to have the storage capacity for it. So they're, they're building that out. And I, I do believe they have a plan. I just, they yeah. haven't said what it is yet and put the details out. Well, I, it requires, because of that cold storage that's required, there's a, a little bit of infrastructure that goes yes. along with it. We visited with Donald Moore yes. a few weeks ago on it, and he, he helped me feel better about it. But several of the hospitals in our region and so forth, um, they... They've already got some of yes, this. Yes, so and, and they do. They, they, I mean, vaccines do have to be stored this cold. So um, it, it's not like you have to supply everybody with freezers to store the vaccine. Um, there is storage capacity for it. And the state is working with that, too, to make sure that everybody has the storage capacity. Another important thing with the vaccine is that um, it will be available to everybody at no cost. So um, I I assume that, you know, some offices, if you have insurance, you know, your doctor's office charges, I don't know how that part of it's going to work, but everybody will be able to get it and it will be free. It will basically. Yeah. So there's been a lot of discussion, I think, especially among our membership and we've gotten questions about, uh, are there going to be a lot of hiccups as far as the rural goes? We always we always expect that rural is going to be last on the list or it's going to take, there's some barriers there. Um, what do you think in this plan would have specifically address that? I, I don't think so. Um, they need to get it to everybody. It doesn't matter if you live in the middle of the mountains or downtown Denver. Um, obviously, you know, you're going to have the metro areas that have half a million people living there. You know, they're going to have huge fast access to it. Um, but we, we do have a system built out, um, a medical system, you know, you, if you live in say Custer County, um, you can go get your flu shot. If you right. live in 
you know, some other county in the middle of nowhere, you still get your flu shot. So I I think it's just a banner of getting it to those areas. And my prediction is that you'll see it kind of, there'll be hubs. And then from the hubs, there'll be satellite offices go out. Right. Um, But it's not something that, you know, you're going to be 200 miles away from getting the vaccine. Right. So and we kind of already had that. We've seen that uh, system set up with the testing, right? So yes. We did that. So let me ask you this. The, as far as making sure the right people get it and the order and that sort of thing, how are they managing that? Is it going to be a prescription? Is it going to be, how, how is that going to work? Um, I imagine it's going to be like the testing. Uh, if you remember when the testing first opened, it was only people that were at risk, um, you know, like the first responders, medical right. professionals got it, or people experiencing symptoms. You know, they, they had a metric that said, we have this many tests. These are the people we can test. I, they're going to have the same thing. They know if you're a first responder. Like, they know if you're working in a right. hospital and need the vaccine. Like, that's the obvious. Um, they know if you're over 65, um, you know, and if they don't, then tell them, like, hey, I'm 67 and I have a heart condition. I need the vaccine. And yeah. you will get the vaccine. So, they're, they're pretty good at tracking that. I don't think that will be an obstacle when they distribute it. So I think the next thing, and there's been a lot of conspiracy and discussion as far as nationwide, getting the vaccine, if we have enough and that sort of thing, how's that being addressed? Um, it's right now we don't have enough as far as I know. And I, I, I know nobody on the inside. So this is all from reading the news and going through, through the internet, which isn't always the best source. Um, you, you know, there. this has gone so fast that, you know, it's almost a miracle that we got a vaccine this fast. Right. Um, With that, you're going to have a limited number at the beginning of it. And that's why they're doing this in phases because maybe they can only make, you know, a million right away. So they have a million ready to go. Now, while those are being distributed, they understand how to make it. They have the infrastructure built to make more Then you're going to see 10 million come out and then you're going to see 100 million come out and then you're going to see 300 million come out so that they're building it up and that's again that's why they're doing this in phases they want to vaccinate at least here in Colorado the people that need it the most and right. are the highest at risk and that's why they're doing this because there is going to be a limited number of vaccines coming to Colorado in the beginning right right um, is there going to be antibody testing is that going to increase as well uh, I would imagine so um, being as we both recover from COVID. Um, I'm planning, uh, there's various places around Pueblo. I know that you can go get antibody testing. I'm probably going to go. Um, somebody that will actually, a doctor told me, wait three weeks after you recover and oh. then go get the antibody testing. But yeah, I'm going to go do that. Yeah, and, I'll probably do the and, same. And you'll see that. Um, I think you'll see that grow uh, as we go forward that you know, you go in just like in your blood work, like, oh, we got to do your, your yearly blood work for your physical. Like, oh, we're going to gotcha. test for that. I, I imagine they're going to do something like that. that and and again, if you want to get antibody tested, you could go get antibody tested. Well, I just wonder because I certainly um, wouldn't want to give it to anybody else. And at the same time, I wouldn't want to be vaccinated if somebody else is, it needs it. And so, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? That, like if, if I don't need it, then I'm not. I, that's, that's my view on it too. Like yeah. if I don't want to take away a vaccination from somebody that, that would need absolutely it. needs it. Yeah. Not that we'd make any of those lists anyways. Um, <laughs> so uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to have a long discussion about the, the stimulus package, what that looks like, how the failure to implement it has affected us directly 
in our own homes here in Colorado, the frustration, the failure, all of those things that go with it. Um, we're also going to be talking a little bit about what we as Action 22 are going to be doing in this next year um, for our what we're calling our rapid regional restart. So join us. Uh, we'll be right back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back. You are listening to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain on the Voice America Network. So, as you know, if you're a longtime listener or familiar at all with Action 22, you know that whatever work we do really boils down to the economic health and stability of our region, of the Action 22 area, rural Colorado, and uh, in, re- in like manner, Colorado as a whole. So, when we first started this, and we were already kind of headed in this direction because we've been having a lot of discussion with our partners, with our members about economic health, and that was prior to all of this. We've really looked at this pandemic as an opportunity to build this regional effort in a way that we couldn't before, but now we can, and and we wanna really capitalize on that opportunity So for 2020, Action 22 is going to be launching a 
rapid regional restart is what we're calling it. We've applied for a couple of grants on this. It's uh, several phases, it's three phases, uh, but we're, what really our objective is, is to take the entire region, all the economic development plans that were, the plans that were made, and then take those plans and put them into action items and change those into that. So our intent is to ignore boundaries, turn those plans into action items, and we're going to start that with convening economic groups, agencies, and businesses, and really sort of catalog what resources we have, what those plans were in the past, if they're still relevant, and then how we can create action items. Phase two of that will be creating a work, st- a work center, um, workspace, if you will, where people could have uh, COVID-safe meetings um, and also create digital collateral for whatever businesses that they're, that they're working on. Um, and then the third phase of that is we want to um, make sure that we focus on the veteran community and their entrepreneurial efforts as well and have that bless and lift the entire region. So that's what we're going to be doing. We just wanted to give you an update. And as, as we go along and, and that starts to um, come into focus, we'll, we'll have more discussions on that. So for this next, um, for the remainder of the show, um, and, and I apologize sort of that I have a lot of feelings with regard to this issue. If you're a regular listener, you know how frustrated and angry I have been with Congress about their failure, and failure's the nicest word I can say, for getting another stimulus in motion. Uh, <laughs> So I say that because it's an interesting, it's an interesting feeling to be so incredibly proud of Colorado, of teachers, of healthcare workers, of our legislators, of our executive branch, of everybody who's really responded and at the same time so deeply angry that Congress has held our country hostage over this. And it's my hope or my personal intent that in two years, we don't forget the failures and the successes, the successes on the state level and the abject failure of Congress to get anything passed. So I'm gonna start out with a couple of shout outs, really positive things before we get into um, why particularly today I'm so emotional about this. So I have to say first, a big shout out to, to Governor Polis, but in particular, Governor Polis's staff. Their response time, whenever I've reached out to them, and at first, when he first came into office, I was, I was sort of surprised, but it's so routine with them that I don't want to ever take it for granted. But I can send out an email, and it, moments later, I get a response, and this routinely happens. And within a few minutes, we have a call or a meeting or whatever set up. And there's a long list of responses. So Maria DeCambra, I want to say thank you for always being so responsive and to Allie Kimmel for having um, a discussion with me this morning about this. And, and thank you to Governor Polis for empowering his staff to be that responsive on all the stuff that, uh, that we bring to them. So the next one so this is what happened. I'm just going to give you a quick background. So yesterday, as you know, my husband's a teacher. And yesterday we were hearing discussions. We were getting emails and so forth about how we're going to get the kids back in school in January. 
Um, and Governor Polis yesterday said that the safest place for teachers and students were was in the classroom, and we wholeheartedly agree with him. Um, my husband said the high school's not going to go back until the fourth quarter, um, but I already had that middle schoolers were going to go back. So let me just tell you that District 70 is where we're at, um, District 60 and 70. District 70 um, said that uh, they couldn't do that. And I said, well, governor just said that's, so I think they'll probably change their minds. And he said, it's not a health issue, but it's a money issue. Um, so my second shout out for today is to Michelle Mann, who is the principal at Rye High School where my husband teaches. She is an absolute treasure. We are so lucky to have her. She's exactly what you would want out of a school administrator. Um, so I called her last night because I wanted to get the background. In short, they can't afford to go back into the classroom because it costs about $1,000 extra per student to serve any students who are opting out who aren't gonna be in the classroom. Basically, a teacher um, has to have, in their classroom, they have to take care of their classroom. And while they will go online, you need additional staff to take care of those that aren't in the classroom. And it's just to make sure and ensure that everybody gets the same education, gets an, an equal opportunity to have um, access to education. That costs extra. The school district, District 70 being the lowest funded school district in Colorado, simply does not have the funds in order to do that. Now, this is just, I'm gonna say something, uh, and I'm completely biased, but the teachers at Rye High School, and this, I only know about Rye High School doing this, they were absolutely devastated. Um, and the emotional, everything that they're going through, they understand how serious it is to get these kids back in the classroom. And it's not just an education piece, but it's also a mental health piece and a dropout rate piece and all of those things that go into it. Um, and their ability to do their job, every, every aspect that we already know about. So they said that they would, they've been given a small stipend through all this because of all the extra work and everything. The Rye High School team said that they would rather give up that stipend and let that money be applied to, um, to that program so that they can be back in school. So that's how serious it is. Now, the reason that they don't have the money is not the state's fault and it's not the school district's fault. It's simply, they were relying on the second stimulus to happen. And because it didn't happen, and we don't know if it's going to happen, they can't count on it. I, it's a travesty. It's, failure isn't even a strong enough word for this. So I've asked Brian, <laughs> who is the voice of reason, um, the calming and, and a few months or right after the election, I was like, oh, they're going to pass it. And you told me, trust the system. <laughs> and every day I get more and more angry. So will you give us a breakdown of exactly where this is at? What's happening? Why it hasn't happened? Um, make me feel better, Brian. Yeah, it's going to happen. Um, it, they've, so they've been fighting over it for a while. They, the second, the, the stimulus bill that we're talking about for COVID, um, you know, it's been going back and forth and it got political. You had um, one party, you know, holding off on things and another party holding off on things. And I want to get into the, the weeds on that. But 
basically what you had was um, on the Democrat side, you know, they, they wanted this massive multi-trillion dollar stimulus bill that covers not just COVID, but a lot of things in it. And typical fashion, um, they add a lot of stuff in with it. Um, on the other side of the aisle, you have Republicans on the Senate wanted a more targeted um, stimulus bill to, to basically help individuals and small business during this. So it, one of the, the sticking factors in the whole thing, and, and right now that we're talking about the bipartisan $908 billion bill, which the administration um, actually proposed a $918 billion bill with some changes in it. But you had uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate saying that, you know, this will not pass um, unless, uh, let me read this. So Mitch McConnell wanted liability protection for small business in it. And he said, if it did not have that, um, the Senate would not pass it. And that was a big issue for him. And for months, he's been saying that it needed to include liability protections. Um, Earlier this week on Tuesday, he actually backed down on that, said that he would relent as long as Democrats pause their push for more funding for state and local governments in the next measure. So the Democrats, they wanted more money for state and local governments. Uh, that was their big push. And this was kind of the, the hang up, the most recent hang up among many of this. But that that was a big thing. So um, McConnell did actually say, like, you know, we're, we'll step back on the liability protection if you guys step back on on this. So with that being said, um, if you get into it, uh, the $908 billion package, it included um, $288 billion for small business, $180 billion for unemployment insurance, $160 billion for state, local, and tribal governments, $82 billion for education, $45 billion for transportation, such as airlines, airports, buses, transit, Amtrak, $35 billion for healthcare provider relief funds, 26 billion for nutrition and agriculture, 25 billion for rental housing assistance, 16 billion for vaccine development and distribution and testing and tracing, 12 billion for community lender support, 10 billion for the post office, 10 billion for childcare, 10 billion for broadband, 5 billion for opioid treatment, and 4 billion for student loans. Um, I, I think uh, one thing to highlight there that my history of working on the opioid epidemic through Congress and the House, you know, that that's important because we did see a spike in um, opioid use, yeah. uh, abuse. And, I, and I'm not even talking about like on the street, like shooting heroin. This is um, you couldn't go to the doctor. So they just kept prescribing pain pills to people when somebody should have had surgery and you oh, couldn't have yeah. surgery, like say on your shoulder, you have uh, hurt back. And at the time, um, elective surgery, you know, you weren't allowed to have elective right. surgery. And we're seeing that happen again. So I, I just know personally from a, a few people that, you know, their their doctor's office just said, well, keep taking pain pills. And when this opens up, we'll get your surgery in. So, th so that's in the $908 billion. Um, on top of that, um, the administration came back and they wanted to do $918 billion. And what that would do would be it would include a stimulus check. So they want to give individuals $600, not the 1200 that we saw earlier this year, but $600, 1200 total for a couple, but they wanted to cut out the unemployment insurance. So as it stands right now on the 908, what it would do was would add uh, $300, you know, federal to your unemployment. Okay. We, it was 600 that expired in July and they wanted to do 300 this one 
but the administration is proposing cut that out and we'll just do a stimulus check to everybody for $600 and or $1,200 for a couple. You do have some Democrats in the, the Senate, uh, Bernie Sanders being the most vocal one, saying they would not support anything that didn't have at least $1,200 per person and $500 per kid. So with that all being said, we're kind of seeing what, what the main sticking points are at this time. Um, the House did vote to extend government funding. So today was the deadline. Um, the government would have shut down if they didn't fund it. Um, so today they voted to extend it for a week. So it's a, like a short CR till the 18th, the end of next week. Right. With that being said, they do want to tie the COVID relief package in with the big spending package. Um, and both McConnell and Pelosi said Congress, the House and Senate will not adjourn without passing a package. So they're going to be there until they pass it. They're not going to go home. They're not going to adjourn until next year or whatever. They're, they're going to stay there until it's passed. Also, the government needs to be funded as of Friday next week right. or else it shuts down. Now, the, the big picture of this is this $908 billion um, the, the way the Democrats are kind of looking at it is like, this is just the appetizer for the big one when President Biden takes over. Okay. You know, they think this is the Band-Aid when President-elect Biden assumes office next year, then we'll have the big package and we can get it through. Um, and this is why you're seeing in the political stuff that they're really focusing on these two Senate elections, because right now, um, if the, the Republicans win, they control the Senate. And that's kind of a stopgap. And if, you know, if they lose and the Senate has a Democrat majority, then they can pass whatever they want, basically, through it. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see. And that will factor into, is there going to be more next year or what it is going to be? But as of right now, again, they're, they're still fighting over this. The, the Republican, the sticking point that I talked about earlier with the liability protection, um, that, that's been a, talked about because... They, they're afraid that after this is all said and done, that there's going to be multiple lawsuits. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be, hey, I went to your restaurant and I got COVID. I'm suing you. And that's the fear. Um, and that's a valid fear. It, right it now. is a valid fear. And, and partially because as we're seeing, you can have COVID, have no symptoms, not even know it. And then you could get sick five days later. So I have COVID on Monday. I go and eat at a restaurant on Wednesday. I get sick on Thursday. I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, I caught COVID from the restaurant yesterday. Also. But you have no idea. You have no idea. But as I know with personal experience, it doesn't matter with lawsuits. They, right. they can sue. And you're going to see, you know, lawyers jumping at this like, oh, we'll sue everybody. We got COVID. But the, there's actually a separate bill with it. Um, it's the Safe to Work Act. And this is supported by pretty much everybody in the industry and what it, it would do. Um, and I think what McConnell and the Republicans want to see in the relief package also, but if this is separate, it would temporarily limit liability for exposure claims of everything from small businesses to frontline workers, because that's another fear that we're seeing that, um, you know, I, I went to the doctor, I got COVID, I'm going to sue the doctor. Right. Um, I, got, I, I got it at work. Yeah. I can I, sue my employer. I got arrested and got it from the cop and I can sue the cop. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I, my kid went to school and caught COVID. I can sue the school. And what this bill does is just put a, a temporary like safeguard on that. Um, as long as the, the business or the, 
the hospital or the school, you know, they are following public health oh, right. guidelines and there's not, you know, gross negligence on their behalf. So why is, would there be, what would be the rationalization for any pushback on liability protections? So from what I've read from the, um, the pushback on it from the Democrats, they said the, there already is protection because to bring it to a lawsuit, you have to show that there was gross negligence that they willingly defied, you know, the orders but isn't that a state by state thing? I think Some so. Some states I, I don't there's protections, I'm, I'm other a, states there's not. I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer on this, so I, I do not okay. know. Um, but again, speaking from personal experience, um, you know, I was in a situation where there was absolutely no gross negligence, and we followed every rule. And right. the business I own was sued, and I mean, we were right. the The guy suing was wrong. But the insurance decided to settle anyway because it was cheaper just to settle. So and so you lost your business anyways. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't lose my business because of it, like directly. But once the I lost, once it was settled, it showed up. You know, if I wanted to get insurance again, it's like, oh, you settled this. Like I couldn't afford the insurance after that. Oh, yeah. So that's the fear that I'm hearing from the businesses and reading through the um, the lobbyist organizations, the associations. You know, for businesses that they're really afraid of seeing something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, and I don't know why anybody would object to providing every protection for businesses right now that they could, especially these small businesses. Yes. It's, it's folly to think that they're not going to be the, the, one of the more key factors for a recovery on the economic side and that they haven't been the hardest hit. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, it only takes one lawsuit and you're going to, you'll see it. It'll be, hey, I went and got coffee at this coffee shop and I caught COVID. I'm suing this coffee shop. Um, and then you'll see that more people might be doing that. Exactly. And I, I hope I'm wrong. Like, it, it, I could be wrong and I have faith in people not to do this. But you also see these lawsuits all the time. Yeah, um, you do. And that's, that's where it is. And even if they don't come to fruition, the, the actual process of going through all that costs so much money. It's, it, it costs money on the individual, the business, both sides, the taxpayers, everything. Um, and then on the flip side, the the pushback of more local and state and local funding too. Right. You know, the, I think the, the Republican way of thinking is, you know, we'd rather see this money get to the people that need it versus, you know, go to the state to be distributed however the state wants to right. do it. They want to see it actually go to the the businesses and the people that actually need this money and kind of track that. Um, and, and that's why I think they're pushing back. They're like, they're looking at it and just using my brain and knowing how people like this think it's like, Hey, we did the paycheck protection program and it kind of, it worked in some places it messed up. Like why would we throw more money at it if it didn't work how it was supposed to type thing? So does the, I guess my big question on that is, does the federal government have the capacity to circumvent the states to get to these businesses and these and these individuals themselves? Well, they did with the Paycheck Protection Program. That was from the federal government to the, the businesses. You had to go through a process for it, and you actually had to go through a lender. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was federal money going directly to the businesses. It didn't okay. go through the state. And then there was money that went to the state that went to the businesses as well. So there were two, I mean, there were basically yeah, two it, there's, pots. It's like a bunch of money thrown all over the place in different ways to get it. Um, so it, they can do that. Um, but they want to see it more targeted and more effective. 
where the other site sees just, they just, I think they want to see a bunch of money going to it and then fixing it that way versus again, like the laser focus on it. And that's where the argument of that comes in. And, and right now that's, um, that's the sticking points. Um, other than the political side of it, which we won't get into now of why it hasn't passed up until the presidential election, but because it was a political tool. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I heard on the, the inside, some inside baseball that um, with the, the CARES money that was going to small businesses, you know, there was still a, around 130 some billion dollars that wasn't even touched. What happened there? I don't know, um, but there is this money that was supposed to go to businesses and, and help these people out. And from what I understand is there is a group of congressmen and women, both sides of the aisle that, you know, they're like, hey, let's vote on this. Let's release this money. But um, the powers that be won't, won't release it or won't put it on the floor for a vote. So that there's actually extra money in there that hasn't got distributed yet. This is the kind of stuff that makes me insane. Yes, um, that's, so here's, I guess there's the other thing. And by the way, you did a beautiful job of breaking that down. That being said, when I look at what, um, our own state assembly was able to do mm-hmm. at, at some risk to themselves in a short amount of time, really. And by all reports, they, except for a tiny little things, but by all reports, they really set aside their political whatever and got those things done. And like Danea said last, Danea Asgard said last week that they did what they could with what they had. And I thought that they did a beautiful job and set a really, really good example. I think Congress is out of excuses. It's tougher for Congress. So it works with the state because we live in the state of Colorado and it's small. It's not the whole country. And our views in Colorado, no matter how polarized we get with our state legislators and people, we're still Coloradoans and we're all on the same page. With Congress, you have people from New York, you have people from Texas, you have people from Colorado, Mm -hmm. you have people from, you know, all over the place where their ideals are either they're unaware of what, how the other state works how their people work, you know, they, they just don't know. Right. We're all Americans, obviously, but Colorado is way different than, than New else. York or California and Idaho and Texas. So that that's where you get it. And to be honest, the way they set up Congress is um, it's really hard to do stuff. And that yeah. was on purpose. And yeah. unfortunately, in times like this, we need it done. We need it done and it's not. So you're confident that it's going to happen at some point. It has to happen. Yes, okay. it's going to happen. So with the last few moments, um, I wanted to circle back um, and give a shout out to um, Ali Kimmel and, and the governor's office, what they've done. And we're going to follow up with this in, in coming weeks. But they put a work group together that's back to school in January. That's their that's their goal. That's their um, purpose and, and one of the things that we do as Action 22 is that those details that aren't trickling up, we're going to make sure that they trickle up and those specific things happen. Um, and it's it's such a powerful thing to be able to make those calls and to find out what's going on and to be able to give some answers to the, the treasures like Michelle Mann as to far that, again, like what you said, it's going to happen. It'll We'll make it work. Don't Don't freak out completely. Yet. So next week, we're going to have a really cool show with, um, and, and again, it's depending on what's going on, but we plan to have um, Congressman Scott Tipton 
um, be on the show with us next week. Now he'll be in DC, correct? Yes. So hopefully he can give us a up a, like right now up to date yes. on this whole stimulus thing next week. And we're we're a big fan of his and and we appreciate him so much. So um, tune in next week and we will be visiting with uh, Congressman Scott Tipton. If you have in the meantime have any questions that you'd like us to ask the congressman next week, you can email those to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. So thank you so much again for everybody for joining us um, for another episode of Making Action Happen on the Voice America Network. We will talk at you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.